there, there were eyes on me, that they were watching me, that they were pleased to see the type of writing and the messaging that was coming out. And they felt that I was in a position to be of use to the font and that they would let me know what I could do for them. You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi podcast. I'm Prabhjot Kaur. And I'm Dharaj Singh. We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all the generations of people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek and Huron-Wendat. Also, just some reminders, if you guys like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, and all other listening platforms. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at Once again, that's podcast at Our guest today is Ishnankar. Ishnankar is a retired editorial designer. She immigrated to Sudbury, Ontario in 1963 with her family during a time when the Sikh community was quite small. After high school, she moved back to India to connect to her roots and ended up staying for 10 years. During this time, she completed a bachelor's and master's degree in science, but subsequently began working in journalism. She started her work as an editor for Ajit English in the years leading up to 1984. In this podcast, we'll highlight the work she did during this important time for the Sikh month. We'll also touch on the impact her father, Professor Uday Singh, and her mother, Bibi Surjit Kaur, had in the Sikh community. Ishnankar has had an extraordinary journey and we can't wait for you to hear it. So here's Ishnankar. All right, uh, welcome Ishnankar. Thanks for being on the podcast uh, with us today. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Um, and if we could start off uh, just by telling us a bit about yourself. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm uh, Ishlan Kaur. I've, um, I was born in India, moved to Canada at the age of five. Uh, was the middle child of uh, five. The other four were all boys. Um, I grew up in a very... Um, a traditional Sikh household uh, where the father was the uh, unquestioned head of the household. Um, he was the sole earner as well, as my mother did not work out of the house, and so that gave him the um, authority and almost the, uh, the voice to uh, pretty much command and dictate whatever happened in the house. So that's just setting the stage. Awesome. And then now you, you have kids and grandkids as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So life has moved on, obviously. <laughs> uh, grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, went back to India for uh, almost 10 years, did my bachelor's and master's uh, first at Khalsa College in Jalandhar and then DAV College in Jalandhar. Um, got married, worked uh, for a newspaper in Jalandhar and then returned to Canada after the attack on the Varsav in 1984. We're excited to go into all of that because your story is extraordinary. 
<laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. But and we do want to talk about you and your the podcast is about you. But we wanted to take some time um, during this podcast to highlight your father. Your father was Professor Uday Singh, which the community knows very well. Professor Uday Singh was the companion of the great Baisaib Bairan Singh for 16 years, and they did seva in Amritsar Jars with Baisaib for many years. Your father is considered a jewel of the Pant. He was well known in the Toronto area for his dedication to teaching uh, children Gurmukhi and Gurmat. And for over 40 years, he taught young children Gurmukhi, Gurmat, and Santya at his Gurmat school. And it was all done for free. His legacy lives on in thousands of people, in the thousands of people he touched and inspired throughout his whole life. Um, and as you mentioned, he came to Sudbury, Canada in the early 1960s when there were not many Sikhs at all. Uh, can you talk about those early years when your family first came to Canada? Um, so, Dad came to Canada in 1960. Uh, he came as a student. Um, he uh, applied for and was selected to do his master's at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, he finished that, I believe, in 62. And then at that time, a new university opened up in Sudbury, Ontario, Laurentian, and applied for a position there, which he got. And uh, that was his first and his last job in Canada. He uh, retired from Laurentian. And so once he got a job, he was then able to sponsor his family, which at that time consisted of my mom, uh, three brothers, and myself. And we all arrived in Canada in, uh, I believe it was May 1963. Uh, so that's how we got there. Um, we, uh, I don't recall much except, of, um, you know, it was a, a life like any other. It, it was not... Um, at that age, I don't recall there being any hardships. I don't recall any problems at school. I do. Uh, I, I started kindergarten. I started school in formal schooling in Sudbury. And uh, the joke in the house, because we got there in May, must have started school in May. First time there, spoke no English. And the joke was that I had failed kindergarten. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the level of my problems at that time. <laughs> and I, I, I used to joke that, no, but I saw my teacher on the road the other day and she had my report card in her purse and she told me I had passed. So it was the bullies, the brothers that I was living with who made life difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are brothers for, right? <laughs> I feel like I'm supposed to take offense to that. Um, <laughs> Your, your father played a, a huge role in establishing the Sikh community in Ontario. And um, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily mean that the children grow up uh, in a Sikhi environment or feel um, intrigued by what Sikhi offers. So how was your personal journey getting into Sikhi? How did that kind of play out for you? Um, so I, I think you said it there, um, the, you know, the, the leanings or the interests of the parents or the what they are loyal to do not necessarily transmit to the children. And uh, it was, um, you know, that definitely the case in our household. Um, I had two older brothers, both of whom um, there was a, a, a constant uh, conflict in the house. Um, it was, uh, you know, the generation gap was very prominent. And um, he was, of course, as most Punjabi or Sikh uh, parents are, 
a little more lenient with the boys than he was with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that, I think you, you can get the feel for how it um, set the dynamics in the house. And um, so my two older brothers left home as soon as they had a chance. Um, one moved to Calgary where he got into university and actually never came back from there. Uh, married um, a lovely lady by the name of Peggy um, in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and then uh, a year later died in a car accident there. Uh, the second uh, brother also moved out, um, uh, went to Waterloo University, where he eventually completed his studies, became a chartered accountant, and he also uh, did not return home until about a year before my father passed away. So it, it was a journey, very typical immigrant, um, new world, old world, new traditions, old traditions sort of a story. Mm-hmm. And so my my uh, journey, as soon, when my second brother left home, my father was quite uh, concerned. The third child, he said, is a daughter, and I cannot allow her to walk out. Um, and so he uh, suggested um, that I kind of figure out who I am, um, my roots, where I'm from. And he suggested, after I finished grade 12, that I go back to India and study there just for one year um, and, you know, figure out who I am, because it was impossible. Very small community in Sudbury, and it was not one that really, um, you know, got together much. We have social media now. You can talk to anyone, anytime. Mm-hmm. There, you know, you have to make the effort to go and... Um, and there was not that much interaction at that point. And so he suggested that, and uh, I was not too happy about it initially, but then, of course, um, I did go, and uh, it was a, it was truly a wonderful uh, thing for me to, to be able to do at that time, to truly figure out who I was and, and to realize that in Sudbury we were you know, kind of isolated as, as a community um, no direct family, no uncles, no aunts, no grandparents, no larger community, which mm-hmm. uh, we have, we have, but they just weren't there. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Jalandhar, and it was like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> how do all these people know who I am? Yeah, and it was fabulous. It was really, really soul nourishing to, to to find my family there. And um, so did that trip play a part into your decision to ultimately become Amritari and get initiated into the fund? I was Amritari before that. Oh, okay. I had uh, uh, visited India in 72 with my father and had taken Amrit then. Didn't really... Um, I, it was not really my decision, and but it was anyway something that uh, has shaped me ever since. And so um, wearing the star in Sudbury wasn't really a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not for me. I mean, it never really bothered me. Well, it may have bothered me, but it didn't bother others. Um, and in, and at one of the surprises in uh, moving to Jalandhar was I thought nobody would 
be bothered with the facade, but no, mm. it was the opposite. <laughs> they oh, were wow. just as bothered there by it. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, eye-opener for sure. <laughs> that seems, uh, you know, that's very brave of you to go from, because I, like I, all of us, like when we go to India, it's fun and exciting, but I think almost everybody feels after a while, like, okay, I'm ready to go back home yeah. because mm -hmm. Canada is, is home. And when I go there, I'm like, nobody's following the traffic laws, like nobody's <laughs> waiting at the red lights and Mm -hmm. I, the culture is very different and that type of thing. We so that's very odd. That we're only going to be there for like two months max, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We're back in Canada, mm -hmm. back in our homes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's admirable of you to stay there for 10 years in a culture that I guess you weren't really even used to. I was not used to it at, at all. But uh, I think part of the dynamic was dad was in Canada and I was there. And so mm -hmm. the, it was um, uh, all of those, those issues that existed here were not there. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, there I was, um, you know, the uh, one granddaughter, my grandfather uh, was, a, both grandfathers were very prominent people. And then all of a sudden I had this prominence too, just mm -hmm. <laughs> because I was related to them. Right. And then I went to um, Khalsa College and because uh, um, I was from Canada. And at that time, so this is 1974, there weren't very many people who actually made the trip back, not, mm -hmm. not like nowadays. And uh, at college, my they nicknamed me Candy, short for Canadian. So, <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, my children still giggle when I tell them that. <laughs> and so it was a different world for me, actually. There was a lot more freedom, and I had my, my label there, if you want to call it, that was so different from what it was here. And all of a sudden, like, people knew who I was. They knew my grandparents, and some of their glow you know, rubbed off on me. So it was a, in that sense, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> right. And I remember listening to Sanjit's documentary where you were talking about that sense of family that you never really had mm -hmm. in Sudbury because your friends would have, oh, I'm going to my uncle's house, my aunt's house, my cousin's house, and you never had that because it was just right. the That's six true. of you, seven of you, right? It was like you have five uh, there's five kids and then parents, right? So yes. seven of you. Yeah, so so there was a Punjabi community, a Sikh community there. We had the Gurdwara at our house on Sunday. But it's not the same as having a grandfather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had two cousins who were at Khalsa College at the same time. And I don't know if you know how colleges and um, cousins and brothers and sisters work there. But the boys really watch out. Mm -hmm. for their sisters and so then all of a sudden there was this protection and it was like wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah that to me was very very uh meaningful right and you guys had modern sirup at home here in Sudbury always okay and then you would have sangat over yes it was, was it the kirtan programs or yeah we would have a, a regular gurdwara program on um, saturdays uh you know with kirtan and uh part and my mom would make langar and Punjabi school <laughs> right <laughs> so it started way back then right yeah I can't imagine like professor this thing is your father teaching you Gurmukhi and it's very interesting um <laughs> you so you are fluent in French which mm -hmm. is so cool to me anytime I go to Montreal and I watch like our friends Amanjot guys like talking in French to each other it's mm -hmm. amazing um can you talk about how you became fluent in French and what that means to you to be bilingual um, so, as I mentioned, I started schooling here in Sudbury, and so from um, grade three, 
uh, dad took us out of Sudbury into a small, tiny village outside, about 35 miles north um, of Sudbury called St. Charles. And if anybody follows hockey, St. Charles is where they have a, a pretty um, well-known training camp for budding hockey players. I don't think it existed then, but that's what they have there now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, tiny village, one main street. That's all there was, one school, one church. And uh, we were there for the summer because Dad obviously had the summers off from teaching. And he said, okay, one summer, intense French immersion. Uh, didn't call it that then, of course. That, that word didn't exist. Right. And he hired a tutor um, who was the a postmaster's daughter, uh, Mademoiselle Chevrefis. We had to call her Mademoiselle. Had to be polite. Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle, yes. And she, <laughs> she came and she taught, um, tutored us in French. And uh, they found other little kids from the neighborhood uh, who became designated our friends so that we could practice our French. And by the end of the summer, we were all chattering away fluently. And it, Dad's experiment had worked so well that he said, okay, we're going to spend a couple more years here. And so I went to school from grade three to grade seven in Sudbury. We were there that long. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. not in Sudbury, sorry, in St. Charles. In St. Charles, okay. Yes. And do you still speak French? Do you practice it? Mm -hmm. I, I understand it. I read it fluently. My ability to speak is a little uh, uh, warped, but I still do. <laughs> you get on that. I remember just learning French and then like forgetting it all because we never get the practice here. That's just yeah, Ontario, that's... I feel sometimes, and it's the initiative of the person. And you started in grade four. Back when yeah. we were kids, you started French in grade four, which I think yeah. is very late to learn a new language. Yeah, I agree. I don't remember learning a lot of, like, I don't remember learning French properly in elementary, but in high school, yes. Mm -hmm. And my high school teachers were the ones who kind of convinced me to take it all the way. Mm -hmm. Because in grade nine, I had planned on just taking it for grade nine and then dropping it after. Yeah, because you had to take it in grade yeah, nine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they, um, um, I, I worked for the Ministry of Education, and this is a topic that I, uh, you know, fought for. Um, French immersion doesn't, the goal of French immersion is not to make anyone fluent in French. Mm -hmm. um, and so to change that or to put more emphasis, uh, the Francophone community is working really hard to mm -hmm. make sure their language is not allowed to die. Uh, what happened here in Brampton is there were so few people in, at the high school level who were taking French that they actually excluded French from the programs long time. Wow. So uh, our middle daughter, Metav, uh, took French all the way up to grade 11, and then grade 12, it just wasn't offered. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so, um, you know, and, and that, I always tie that back to uh, how the Francophones fight for French is the way that we need to fight for our Punjabi language. Yeah. Because if you lose it, you'll never get it back. Mm -hmm. um, so now French, uh, they introduce it at grade one, grade four, and grade seven. So there's the opportunity of getting into that. it faster. Has yeah. that been implemented everywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So they started in grade one now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know even Montreal, my friends from Montreal, they said that growing up, 
obviously they're fluent in French, but they said kids nowadays are much better at it. And they would rather speak French with each other than mm -hmm. English. Like mm -hmm. if you go to Montreal now, all the little kids, they first speak French with each other. And English is a little bit uncomfortable for them, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's what we need to do with Punjabi. And mm -hmm. French, of course. Yeah, and French, yeah. Uh, moving down a bit farther on your academic journey, uh, becoming an editorial designer. So you have a bachelor's and master's. Uh, what did you major in? How did you, uh, what steps did you take to becoming an editorial designer? I think it was just my good luck that I ended up in there. Um, I have a bachelor's. Uh, so in India at that time, in Punjab anyway, you did either uh, in college, you studied either the medical group of subjects the non-medical group, or the arts, and, and commerce. Those were the only options you had. And, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> of course, um, my father, uh, my grade 10, uh, my grade 12 diploma, high school diploma, I still have in my father's handwriting written on it. I think I had uh, moved to India at that point, and he was just putting his thoughts together. He was going to call, and he was putting his thoughts together about what he needed to say to me. And he wrote there, tell Ishnan she wants to become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> tell her she wants. <laughs> so obviously I was studying in the medical group of subjects in, in India. Um, so I didn't make it to medical school. Um, and so then I was, it was time for master's and um, the, the story continues. I did a master's in chemistry, <clears throat> subject that I uh, never really enjoyed. And I'm happy <laughs> to say have never had to work in for even one day. <laughs> but sciences were good. Um, they, that's what I needed to do, and I did it. But somewhere in between uh, the Indian Express in um, Chandigarh, uh, one of the largest newspapers in India at that time, I'm sure it still is, um, uh, advertised for editorial assistance, and um, I applied. They called me in for a test, and I got selected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in the world of journalism. Um, I always loved languages, always loved reading and writing, and uh, um, the test that they uh, had was um, they asked to write... Um, you know, uh, a piece on our day that morning, just what the morning was, and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I can't remember what I wrote, but it got me in. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started. Um, but because I was between the first and second year of uh, my master's, um, I got another call from Canada saying, "You really should finish your master's." Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. I went back, finished my master's, but then, of course had tasted journalism and then pursued it after that. What was your father's reaction to do, you doing a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in the sciences and then going to being an editorial designer? My father's greatest measure of uh, a person's intellect was their ability to communicate. He was so... He loved languages. And so... And it showed he... Um, you know, got, got us fluent in, um, in French. And then when we came back from St. Charles to Sudbury, um, I was, I believe, grade 11, and he said, you know, I think you should learn German. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> and the high school that I was in, it was a French high school, did not offer German. So he uh, pushed with the school board and they allowed me, uh, or they, um, they allowed me to take German at a different high school after hours. A teacher would stay behind just for me. Wow. Once a week, yes, at Lasalle. So, so this was his, he understood the power of language and he understood that uh, unless you had the ability to communicate, every other skill was going to be in the shadows. Mm -hmm. And so for him, he was so delighted, so proud that mm -hmm. I had made it. <laughs> and that's a good quality of a Gursik too is to know different languages and be able to communicate with people you can educate so many different people about who you are your appearance your faith and mm -hmm. just because you speak the same language as them right? I, I mean cool. uh, when you look at the Sikh community here they're always portrayed as being unable to speak English properly mm -hmm. you know it's just a, almost a, a, a caricature and not just a Six, I guess, of every immigrant community, mm -hmm. and so to be able to, uh, like, uh, I remember going into a doctor's office once, and he, my doctor was not there, so they gave me a, a different one and um, told him what was happening, and he just kept looking at me, didn't respond, and then he said, "Oh, I expected an accent. <laughs> Your English is flawless." Yeah, and so you know that's what people just judge you by that and but when you're able to speak to them at their own level mm -hmm. uh, it, they're kind of speechless mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah uh, language is uh, um, you know math and science were the skills that you needed a couple maybe a decade ago mm -hmm. now it's the ability to communicate For which, sure. you know, which is going to take you forward yeah I find that so, very relevant in today's day and age too because I mean like just like let's say commuting to campus, I'll always just get those stairs, not expecting, like even not expecting me to get off at the U of E campus. Mm -hmm. And when I am, and when I say something in class, everyone's looking. Mm -hmm. um, and even then, like language skills have, are, are the reason I've been employed on Parliament Hill a couple of times. And without those, I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, no, that, that's a lot more relevant than I would expect it to be. Because now the push these days is get into med school or get into the sciences because that science degree or that bachelor's of science Will look great on a wall but not being able to communicate I've, ne I've never thought about it that way i just found that very interesting yeah i can relate to that too I, I have one experience where i think it was a service ontario or service canada i went up to the desk and started speaking in english fluently and uh, like the the woman spoke first and she was speaking very slowly to me and then i just replied back and like mm -hmm. <laughs> normal speed <laughs> mm -hmm. and she was i think taken aback Mm -hmm. And it wasn't expecting that. So, I mean, we mm -hmm. deal with it now being millennials. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine, like, when you were speaking English mm -hmm. or even mm -hmm. now, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Um, so going back to the editorial work that you did. So you started off at Indian Express mm -hmm. and then you made your way to Ajit English. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, okay. So I finished my master's. I got married and I, we had our first uh, child, uh, Deepkar. Deep was um, just brand new, just a couple of days old, when um, I had applied for a job with Ajit English, um, and they asked me to come in for an interview. Uh, long story short, 
Deep was two weeks old when I started working. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no maternity leave there at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, I had my mom who was able to look after her, mm -hmm. look after our daughter. And so that's when I started working there. And um, so again, uh, Ajit, as you all probably know, was one of the largest Punjabi papers in Jalandhar. Mm -hmm. And then they started um, a, an English weekly. And so I was uh, hard to work on that. So this is 1983, Sorry. 83, okay. uh, a lot. And I think the reason they started this English paper was because there was so much happening in Punjab at that time uh, with the, the, the whole uh, Sikh movement. Uh, Pindrawale was uh, becoming more and more vocal and more popular. Um, the, uh, the episode of the Fedah uh, Shaheed um, was still, you know, very raw in everybody's minds. And so all of that came together and they were trying to reach out to a larger audience, to a different audience, and that's why they started the Ajit uh, English. They wanted to compete with the Tribune and the Indian Express. And they wanted to present themselves as the definitive Sikh voice mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, the Hindu voice that most people felt was represented in the Tribune. Yeah. other papers i feel yeah. like that's so true to like the purpose of journalism too it's mm -hmm. like getting that word out which sometimes you don't always see here because it's always i guess sometimes watered out but it's always one voice mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. many yeah what was being portrayed in tribune and indian express like was it inaccurate information and that's why ajit english was established um it's well the facts were always there but how they are ultimately presented for consumption is where the slant comes in, mm -hmm. right? And the fact that there were no inquiries and there was, well, still no justice shows that there was never really a push from anywhere for that. And, uh, you know, how many years has it been? And there's, it hasn't changed. So that's the, uh, the power or the impact that uh, journalism can have. Mm -hmm. And so to combat that, uh, to present a, a forum for Pindravali's voice was what Ajit English was initially set up for. Was it established by people who were close associates with Santi or who um, established it? Uh, it was uh, Sadhu Singh Hamdalk, the founder of uh, Ajit, okay. uh, who established this. But he hired... Uh, Dr. Prithipal Singh Kapoor to lead Ajit English, which is something that Indian uh, or Punjabi papers never do. They never bring out uh, someone who is, at that point anyway, um, who is a uh, recognized um, intellectual or someone who is an authority on that. So Dr. Prithipal Singh Kapoor was, um, uh, he, he was an eminent historian. He had, many, he had written many books on Sikh history. Uh, he knew the movement inside out. Mm -hmm. He later became, um, I believe it was uh, either registrar or vice chancellor for Nanak University. So somebody who actually knew in what was happening. And so to bring him on board was, you know, just the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was a, I don't think anyone expected that. Is there any connection between Sadhu Singh Hamdard and Hamdard's newspaper? Yeah. 
Sadhu Singh, who, all the Hamdard papers belong to Sadhu Singh Hamdard. So is Hamdard and Ajit, are they the same paper or they're competitors? Uh, two, two different papers. Um, I'm not sure if that's... Uh, Sadhu Singh Hamdard died mm -hmm. many years ago, so I don't know what it is now. But at that time, Hamdard and Ajit were all the same. Oh, oh okay. okay, gotcha. Okay, got yeah. And then how, was, how big was the team at Ajit English? How many people were working there? It was very small. Yeah, mm -hmm. very small. Yeah, it was weekly, and um, they had one focus, which was uh, to be the mouthpiece for the movement. And uh, so it wasn't that large. I think uh, they tended to mainly um, build on articles that had been written by others. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any um, uh, investigative reporting going on, but there was a lot of opinion. Um, opinions that were expressed, and those were presented, and this newspaper was used to present other people's opinions. And you received letters from people <laughs> that were a part of the movement, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I don't have the dates in front of me, but it would be somewhere between um, 83 and 84, uh, when I received um, an, anonym, an anonymous letter um, uh, basically saying that um, there, there were eyes on me, that they were watching me, that they were pleased to see the type of writing and the messaging that was coming out. And they felt that I was in a position to be of use to the fund and that they would let me know what I could do for them. Um, no name. Uh, in the first letter, no name was written. And that was followed up with a phone call when... Uh, there was no voice at the other end. And so it, it kind of rattled me, kind of scared me, didn't know where it was coming from. And I, I remember kind of looking around when I, as I went home, figure out who was watching me. Um, but then later found out uh, the letters had been written by uh, Sadhguru Gurtej Singh, who was a member of the um, IAS, Indian Administrative Service, which is the highest level of the uh, civil service. Um, at that time, he was very well regarded and uh, um, was seen as one of the intellectuals at the head of the movement. Um, he was very close to Sankhinder Ali. And uh, I think, um, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but I don't think he's as much in favor of the Sikh intellectual as he was at that time. Mm -hmm. But at that time, he was the one who sent that letter to me and then followed up with... Uh, requests to publish some materials, um, which we were able to do. And, um, but this was late in 84, and then, of course, the attack on the Barsab happened, and everything came to an end, pretty much. Did you ever have any fears being in India at that time, during 84? Um, did I have any fears? For your uh, safety, for your well-being? Um, I mean, I think everybody was very much um, on their toes because there were random murders and killings and things happening everywhere. Um, but I don't think I was ever fearful or we never you know, had armed guards outside the house or, or anything. There were guards at um, Ajit. There always were. Um, 
was I fearful? Um, no, I don't. I don't think I was fearful. I was just very. Uh, I was on my toes. <laughs> I knew to be careful. I knew to watch out. I knew to, you know, not to be doing uh, things that that would put my safety in jeopardy. But no, I was not fearful. Um, one of the incidents. Uh, so what what happens in these sorts of things in India is you try the people who are striking or trying to be heard will shut the town down by saying okay nobody can move nobody go to work etc and mm -hmm. so one day when the Hindus decided to shut the town down I said well that's not me <laughs> I'm going to go in so I went in and I was uh, at one point surrounded by a mob of the uh, Hindus who were protesting, and of course, they could clearly see I was not a Hindu. Um, they surrounded my rickshaw um, and threatened all sorts of things. Um, and I, I, I still see myself there. I'm holding up my press card, saying, "But, but, but, I'm, you know, I'm allowed to go in. And who's going to listen to that little voice when there's a mob of angry people?" Mm -hmm. But. Um, out of nowhere, this gentleman came out, he folded his hands at me, he pushed everyone aside, allowed the rickshaw to go through, and, and kept it that way until we were out of sight. So, um, it ended well. <laughs> Maybe I should have thought about it, but I'm glad I, I was able to uh, still go in that. And Ajit English doesn't exist anymore, right? No, they shut down after the attack on the Barsa as a form of protest, they said. And um, did that kind of situation play into your decision to re, uh, come back to Canada after 1984? Was it directly um, the attack that kind of, you know, had that switch of mind that maybe it is time to go back, it's not safe here? Um, it was never a question of safety. Mm -hmm. uh, I came back because I felt that um, I was a very young, young family and I did not see uh, the... Uh, direction or the opportunity that I then at that point knew I would like to see myself uh, move forward in. Mm -hmm. So I um, came back in 1984 uh, on my own, left my daughter and my husband behind and um, came back and started it. Started all over. <laughs> and you came to Toronto, yeah. but at this time your father was still in Sudbury? Yes. And your yeah. father never went back to India, like I think there was, he eventually lost his passport or something. Can you talk about that? Um, so dad was very vocal here. He had no, um, uh, he was very critical of the Indian government for the way they had handled um, everything that was happening in Punjab. And, um, but that's all he was. He was just vocal. He was not, as everyone knows, non-violent. Mm -hmm. Not, not any of that stuff. But because he was vocal, um, he was an easy target, and the Indian government um, blacklisted him and banned him from being able to visit uh, India. So his last visit to India was in uh, 1981. Um, he used to come home every summer for the holidays when the university was uh, shut down for the summer. And um, that was the year... Uh, Mahesh and I got engaged. So we got engaged. Dad left for Canada two days afterwards and never came back to India. Mm -hmm. He uh, wasn't able to attend our wedding. Um, oh, wow. And um, 
in his uh, um, later years, the one thing he wanted the most was to go back to India. Um, in the when he was uh, he had a heart attack, he was hospitalized, had surgery, and um, for the last three or four days, everything he said was about India. He, I was with him one night, late one night. He wanted to get out of the bed. He could see his shoes in the corner of the room. I want to put my shoes on. I want to go to India. Um, I asked him at what point, do you know where you are? And he said, um, I'm on a bed. I'm in front of the bus station in Jalandhar. You know, so everything he said was he wanted to go back. And I guess in his mind he was getting ready as well. So yes, he, he wanted to go back. He tried. I tried. We contacted the uh, consulate here. We presented all sorts of information, but no, they never, they gave my mom a visa, but they didn't uh, give him one. And one of the reasons he wasn't given the visa was, I, I, I read online, and maybe you can confirm, is because he wrote a book about the Khalistan movement, is that correct? Yeah. And then he wrote another book about, I mean, I'm just going to name the book, The Waning and Waxing of the Khalistan Movement. Yeah. And... He wrote another book called I Made Friends with the Saint, yes. uh, and it was about his time with Baisai Parenti Singhji. Mm-hmm. Where would people be able to find those books? Are they available? Um, I think they might be online. Um, he just self, he self-published them, and um, we have some of his papers. I don't know if there are any copies of those books in printed form, mm-hmm. and uh, um, so they're probably online. I see and um, so back in Canada after 1984 in Toronto, what did life look like um, career-wise, family-wise, the transition, yeah, again, after spending all that time in India and coming back in somewhat of an abrupt fashion, how did it all play out for you? Um, I came back, one of the other things that kind of um, helped make this decision was uh, my sister-in-law, my husband's sister, had applied to immigrate to the U.S. way before I even joined that family. And it just so happened, 10 years after applying in 1983, she got um, an interview request from the uh, U.S. Embassy in Delhi. And um, she had given up hope of of it ever coming through. She was a nurse in India. She didn't think it was going to happen. But it did and so she found herself at a uh, position in life where she was able to stop doing what she was doing in uh, India and move to a new country. And this was just around the time when I was uh, thinking um, after the attack and, and all of that. Um, I had also decided, and then it just made sense. Everybody said, why don't you go with her? help her settle down in the U.S., and then move on to Canada. So that's what happened. We left India in, um, I think it was August uh, 1984, and I spent three weeks in the U.S. I helped her settle down, uh, find a job, got her, uh, what do they call it, um, the card, the equivalent of our uh, social insurance card. Um, she got her learner's permit, and so she was well settled. Then I moved on to Canada. And what did you do here? 
because you worked for, I think, a publishing company it was? I um, moved in with my brother, who, who had always lived here. He and his wife, Marion, lived in Scarborough, and they were very kind to um, Scarborough. Yep. He's from Scarborough. Yeah, happy. <laughs> um, he picked me up from the train station with my two suitcases and said, stay for as long as you need to. Mm -hmm. It was very sweet to uh, take me in. And so, obviously, I was going to look for something in the publishing world uh, because I didn't know any chemistry. <laughs> 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 and uh, he, my brother uh, was a chartered is a chartered accountant. He and his wife were both accountants. But on the side, they had a little bookstore. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, oh, publishing. One of my customers works for a publishing house, and I'll see. So, you know, that's the only way to get your foot in, is if you know someone. And um, he spoke to his customer, and she said, well, actually, I'm hiring. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So she invited me uh, in for an interview, and they had interviewed three people, and um, I got it. <laughs> and that was Carswell? That was Carswell, yes. Carswell Legal Publishers, yes. So from the day that I arrived in Toronto to the day I started working, my first day at the job was exactly two weeks. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> And it was, um, she showed me my, so again, when I went in, they tested, they not only tested, uh, you know, your grammar in English, which nobody does anymore, because nobody understands grammar. <laughs> <laughs> or spelling, nobody cares about spelling. Yeah. Well, we autocorrect. So. Autocorrect, yeah. Well, you know what autocorrect can do. <laughs> yeah. A lot of misunderstandings. When you ask about your pet peeves, my kids will tell you, oh, mom, just stop it. No one cares, but I still correct grammar. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Um, yes. So she showed me my test, and uh, uh, I had made three spelling mistakes, I think, but she said that was much better than everything else. So uh, I, I got my foot in the door, I think, because of my brother, but I got the job because I knew how to spell. <laughs> yeah. So that was for how many years did you work? for that publishing company? So that was 1984 uh, that I got, uh, I started working for Carswell, and I was there till 2000. Okay. And uh, what about post-2000? I moved from Carswell to the Ministry of Education in the communications branch as the manager of publishing and translation. And so that uh, branch that I had left back in high school that's where it came in handy. It uh, it was a bilingual position. And um, so the unit that they were looking to hire for did the, um, the editing, English and French, the translation, uh, the design, and the, uh, they managed the printing. So my French at that point was the best of every other candidate. So mm -hmm. oh, that's awesome. Yes. And just going off of that, with you know, you were mentioning earlier that you never really felt like your appearance held you back. And would you say that because you were bilingual, that people could could look beyond that? What was your experience with wearing a gestad and applying for jobs? Did you ever feel discriminated against anything like that? Um, so uh, I applied for one job when I came to Canada, and I got it. So <laughs> never, yeah. never that speaks for to, itself, I guess. Uh, well for whatever reason. But I think my English is, uh, you know, when they hear me speak English, they are able to look beyond 
mm-hmm. everything else, fairly or unfairly, right? Mm-hmm. That's uh, part of the stereotype that everybody kind of has in their head, and that's what you see. Um, and then when I went to the ministry, uh, I was uh, taken aback at how um, how non-judgmental the whole thing was not that I was looking for it but you know at the back of your mind you think oh well you know maybe maybe not but it was like wow they said oh they pretty much told me at the interview that I would hear from them again and um, uh, they called the references because that's part of the whole hiring process they have to do that and when those people referred back to me and one of my references was the uh, vice president that I worked for at Carswell and he just came in and he said, you've got the job, I know it. <laughs> he said, the lady who called me, I just charmed her completely. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it was that easy. It was, and it was fabulous. Such a great opportunity. I loved every minute of it. It's in nice both, to hear that side. In both places, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. like, on this podcast, we've talked to a lot of people and a lot of people have had struggles and because of their appearance and... This is really good for people to hear as well, is that it doesn't have to be hard. Mm-hmm. That, you know, communication and skills goes a long way and your appearance doesn't have to hold you back. So it's nice to hear your perspective. Um, I, I think there's always difficult people, and mm-hmm. I've had my fair share of them. Um, one thing I've learned is they're not just difficult with me, they're difficult in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not going to waste a minute's time worrying about somebody who's just naturally difficult right (laughs) you do your job and you move on and uh, we keep going so i think that's probably another thing is like that blase attitude you want to be you want to be miserable go ahead and be miserable i'm not going to be miserable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that helps uh switching gears a little bit um into into stereotypes and in society in general uh many young women who are career driven and want to focus on advancing themselves in their workplace or careers deal with pressures of also being present in their roles as wives, mothers, in their family. Um, There's still that stereotype that, yes, a woman can be successful at work, but only to a certain point uh, up until it doesn't interfere with how she can um, live with her family, raise her family. Um, And when you're at the age of getting married and having children, your career should come second in the minds of many. Um, What do you have to say about those types of perceptions in society these days? Um, I think it's something that women uh, face as 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 a whole. Um, doesn't matter what type of uh, turban you wear or what <laughs> what you have on your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We face that at every level. Um, it's kind of compounded in our society where there are joint families and the expectation is that yeah, you work, we know that, but. Mm-hmm. There's other stuff that you need to worry about as well. And yeah, I think we, we all carry that. We all carry that. And what I have learned, and it took me a while to learn it, is that um, I'm responsible for my own happiness and for my own um, my own downtime. And if I don't make it for myself, no one is going to sit down and say, okay, you've done enough, take a break. No one's going to say that. Mm-hmm. So I have to do that for myself. And uh, that's a that's a thing that I think we all have to change one-on-one. Mm-hmm. We have to, and that's what I tell my children. One of my daughters has two little boys now, and I tell her, Mathab, just give them to me. Take your time. Mm-hmm. Go do whatever you need to. Don't worry about them. Because you know what? 
you're not going to find more time any other way. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's something that we all live with, and it's a reality. Yes, we do have to do uh, all the housework, um, but uh, yeah, we kind of push back on that. To kind of, uh, what I did was I hired a cleaning lady, and my mother-in-law actually shut the doors and would not let her in the house. <laughs> but you know, push back on that. Got her to come back. Um, so I got the help where I needed it. My children are, of course, uh, totally fabulous. Always helped out. Um, and my husband, uh, I won't say anything. <laughs> He's just as fabulous. <laughs> and uh, But I think the uh, we're, we're pushing walls. We're pushing really, really strong walls. And we have to do that one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. um, to make that room and to make that space for what's also important. Us. So. Yeah, I relate to that. You know, you have to keep fighting it because mm -hmm. you could just be defeated and just allow it to defeat you. Yeah, it's it's a step by step, minute by minute, really, and yeah. and person by person as well. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went back to work after our third daughter was born, um, I hired uh, a nanny, if you want to call her that, or a housekeeper. And, of course, uh, there was the tussle. My mother-in-law said, no way, I'm going to bring up this little child. and No other woman can come in my house. And I said, try it for a week. <laughs> <laughs> and so the lady came in, and my mother-in-law realized, oh, my gosh, <laughs> and so she saw the advantage of having someone in the house. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, how we, that's how we fought that one. Yeah. You had a particular experience with your mother-in-law. I I never blame uh, the, uh, like different generations for having those types of opinions because it's how they grew up. They don't know any different, and anyone that's willing to change and willing to listen, that's a very big thing. Um, but you had a, a an interesting experience with your mother-in-law and her friend when you guys went to the Gordora. Can you talk about that? Um. So we have three daughters. The Gor Metalkor. And um, such shining beacons of um, everything good citizens and good children and uh, good people need to be. I'm kind of biased, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I truly believe that. And so brought them up in a household where there was never any uh, limit on what they could do. There were no barriers on where they could see themselves. Um, so my husband uh, came to Canada. Once I had a job, I sponsored him. He joined uh, me in uh, 1986. And um, he had a PhD from India and came here and looked around and uh, one day said, what does it take to become a dentist here? And from that thinking outside the box, he applied, got into dental school, went back to school. So that's the role model they, my, our children have always had. He went back to school as an adult, different country, different language of instruction, different world altogether, mm -hmm. and passed. Came and now he's that. Dr. Mahesh in this thing, airport and control. <laughs> <laughs> now he's practicing. Yeah. And they had my example as well. I came here for the second time on my own, settled and, you know, um, so, in their way of thinking, there is no limit to what female, male, mm -hmm. young, old, what they can do. 
And uh, my mother-in-law, even though she was very traditional in a lot of her thinking, in her own time, my father-in-law was um, uh, in the army. He was fought in World War II. He was obviously gone for many years. My mother-in-law was alone in the Fynd, and she decided she was going to go to school. So way back then, in the 1940s, she had the spunk and the uh, ability to say, no one's going to stop me, and she went to nursing school at mm -hmm. that time. So she was a very strong and um, uh, independent woman, and, and uh, she and Mrs. Gill, and there was one other soul auntie, the three of them, uh, you know, just had their own little gang before gangs were, uh, um, or, or their own little squad, I should say. Mm -hmm. Way back then, in, when they came to Canada, they were all very good friends, and they did what they wanted, all of them. So... As traditional as she was, she also had this um, independence in her. But the traditional thinking uh, was still there. And she still, um, she would never have said it, but uh, the people she associated with still felt that um, three girls, well, maybe... That's too many, or mm -hmm. something of the sort. Anyway, she, and my mother-in-law and Mrs. Gill and Mrs. Sowell went to the Gurdwara every evening. Uh, someone would drop them off, and I would pick them all up. They all lived very close together. And one day, it was just my mother-in-law and one other lady, and uh, she got into the car and said, Oh, my gosh, you have three children, three girls. Oh, my God. So I just basically parked the car, and I said... Perhaps you should walk home. <laughs> so That's crazy. My mother-in-law was not very happy. Yeah. Uh, she may have lost a friend. I don't know, but like, I can't worry about those things. Mm -hmm. So something that just wasn't ever tolerated, and uh, and there was never any um, any thought in anyone's head that this was this was even an issue, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Um, there we go. That's that. <laughs> um, you've also done uh, presentations with various organizations such as the Toronto and New York Regional Police. Um, what were those presentations about? Um, uh, I, so this is again mid-80s or early 90s. Uh, the community was just starting to grow and uh, there were lots of issues about police force and perhaps um, not being uh, people of color not being treated fairly, or just some cultural norms which uh, perhaps if the police knew uh, would make it easier for them when dealing with people from various uh, immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. And so I was asked to speak at some of their meetings and some of their points when you know we talked about the importance of hair and the importance of hair, the head covering. And, um, you know, putting your hands on a sick woman, perhaps other ways of dealing with that, things like that. Um, but most of the time what I did was work in the background with uh, girls who had difficulty at home, who had problems in their joint families, or were not perhaps treated fairly, or who needed help. And so in the background, I, I worked with a lot of women who needed that sort of help, support, shelter, and... Um, um, continue to do that to this day. I'm just going off of, we're having a conversation about 
women and their roles. Um, we've highlighted your mother-in-law, we've highlighted your daughters. Um, one other important woman in your life is your, your mother. Can you talk a little bit about your mother? She was, what was her name? Sarjeet Kaur. Sarjeet Kaur. And she yes. also taught with your father. Yes. She taught Gurmukhi with your father. And yes. a lot of a lot of us, not myself, but a lot of my friends learned. Gurkamal, did you? Yes. Yeah, Gurkamal learned from your mom. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about um can you talk about her in general? Okay, so um Mum is the unsung hero in our family story. She's the one who kept everything together. Dad was pretty tough, and uh, with my two older brothers leaving, and eventually my two younger brothers uh, um, sort of breaking off from him as well. The only thing that kept us going back all these years was my mom. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, Dad was the learned one, but the true saint, I think, was my mother. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, not only kept us going back, but she... Uh, through her life, showed us what, um, what, what, how you fight for what is truly important, right? And so, despite um, Dad not having anything to do with any of his children for the longest time, um, he he made it so that we were we, we were never in touch with him or Mom. But we always kept in touch with mom. She mm -hmm. always found a way to contact us and we always found a way to be there when she needed us. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, a very powerful uh, example to me of how, um, you know, you, you look at the long term and you put up with the short term in order to reach that ultimate goal. And so um, mom was right beside dad throughout. Uh, she taught Punjabi. She... I think led the children through twenty six um, um, Sajbot. Wow! Yeah, and so little kids she would take me through. And uh, now that I'm, uh, you know, all grown up and um, not working, I, I do help out in Mahesh's clinic. There's not a day that doesn't go by without someone coming by and saying, "Oh, I learned Punjabi from your mom and dad." You know, so the impact that this uh, simple, uh, humble unassuming person has had is just phenomenal. And so, you know, there's the two the two worlds. There's my father's who, you know, thought that um, he could impact, could change things through the writing of his books or giving speeches or you know, just being uh, vocal. And then there's this quiet, unassuming person always in the background who has had just as powerful an impact. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good lesson for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, she, um, you know, gave up everything. Um, Dad always said that um, he, he came from a, a very uh, humble background. My mom's side was very wealthy. And um, so she and her sister were married to Dad and his brother also. Yeah. Um, and she talked about, or dad would talk about how when he wanted to come to Canada, he didn't have the money. And he asked mom to sell her jewelry, and, and she did. Mm -hmm. And um, jewelry at that time was a woman's insurance. If something ever happened, she always had that jewelry to sell or whatever. But she gave her insurance up mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. 
which is, you know, not a, a small thing. And then throughout, she came to Canada, and Dad was, of course, working and, you know, moving around in society, and she was at home. Five nasty little kids. <laughs> I'm sure we were pretty nasty. And she was also, uh, I think she got sick when your youngest brother was born. Yes. Can you talk yeah. about that, too? Actually, quite interesting. Yes. So she, um, you know, she gave up everything. She gave up her family, her, her parents, her brothers and sisters, came into this new world where she knew no one, didn't know the language, and um, never worked outside the house. Um, when my youngest brother was born, he was born in 1965, just before we moved to St. Charles, and um, she developed rheumatic fever, which forced her to be hospitalized for uh, many months. And so my father was left with uh, four school-going kids and one brand-new baby, who was just a little, or I think maybe about two years old. And so um, there was no way he could stay at home, and there was no way we young kids could uh, take care of the youngest sibling. And so one of our neighbors who uh, had a farm um, actually offered to take my youngest brother in. <laughs> so uh, the youngest spent... Um, the duration of mom's hospital stay, not with us, but with um, the family. Uh, it was Mr. Mrs. Pera was their name. And, um, yeah, he, he stayed with them. <laughs> for how long? Uh, it was for four months. Four months. Yes. And we didn't see him during that time, except the school that we were in um, had a church next to it, and every Friday morning was a Catholic school. Um, all the children would go to church, and all the community would come to church as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we would see because the Peras would come to church, and they would bring their brother. <laughs> oh, wow. We had special dispensation, um, my siblings and myself. We did have to attend uh, the uh, service, church service. Mm -hmm. um, but my youngest brother, he did, mm -hmm. because, of course, he was with his foster parents, <laughs> right? and he attended service. But uh, he was under two years old at that time, but he would recognize us, and he would scream. <laughs> I, I can't, um, I was so young, I don't remember uh, going up and picking him up or whatever. I do remember seeing him, though, and just watching carried into the church. But, you know, there again, there's the community, the sense of community that family realized we needed help, mm -hmm. and they stepped in, and so here we are. Yeah, that's, that's so awesome. cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, I don't know why, it just reminds me of um, the exhibition we had a couple of years ago. The name was A Candle in the Dark, and I feel like that, that's come up a couple times in this podcast, because not only um, the story of your younger brother's foster parents, but also um, that gentleman in the mob uh, getting you to work, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And we always hear those stories about just that that one individual or that one group that kind of mm -hmm. kind of saved the day for mm -hmm. an individual or a family. Mm -hmm. um, so this podcast will mostly be listened uh, to by youth who are still in school and are starting off their careers. Um, can you talk to the youth about the importance of giving back to the community, uh, whether it be the community, your family, society, and whether that be physically, emotionally, um, financially, in terms of the salon? Um, in what ways have you tried to give back to the Sikh community? And how can our generation do the same? Um, that's, a, that's a really uh, 
it's a, it's a point I think that sometimes gets missed in what we see as uh, uh, the leaders of our community and the way that uh, they advise us to carry ourselves. Um, everybody focuses on uh, Nam Japra and, you know, to live a, a, a saintly life. But they forget the other two values that we have. Um, so there's Nam Japana, Manchakana, and Kirtkarni. Um, so Kirtkarni is, yeah, there's no two ways about it. You have to earn an honest living. But everybody has to do it, men, women, everybody. Nam Japana, yes. I mean, that's the tenets of our faith. There's mm -hmm. meaning around that. But the Vanshapna is uh, something that I think we kind of forget. Um, and it's it's been diluted, I think, as well. So the Vanshapna literally means you... Um, uh, literally, it means you uh, share whatever you eat. Shakana right? means to eat. But what it really means is the need to give back mm -hmm. and the, the need to share your wealth. And how you do that is in, you know, you can do that in so many ways. Um, so that that's very important because, uh, you know, the money is going to stay here. And if you can do something with it where it's going to be put to the use that you want it to go to, nothing like that. Um, when, when we look at how we, we came here, we're a little more established, we need to be there for everybody else. That's one other way of giving back, is helping bring others along. But um, helping not just financially, but emotionally, and as well as uh, uh, spiritually. Um, when we look at, uh, you know, our, we go to the Gurdwara, we do our part puja, whatever, the, the Vandashakta portion, which is the Langar portion, I think is as important as the spiritual part of it. And the, um, the need to enforce through that the equality of all of the individuals there, whether they're genders, different genders, different um, you know, last names, etc. That is really done through our Langar. If you, if it is done in the right way, the need to bring your wealth and share it, and to celebrate whatever you're celebrate, celebrating or commemorating by bringing everyone together, first, um, you know, collecting the food, preparing it, serving it, and then eating it. That in that process, it it brings together all of those very basic and important tenets, the needs to share your wealth, the need to uh, remember that everyone, everyone is equal, and to live that equality by, you know, sharing and eating at the same level with them. Mm -hmm. So um, and that's something I think we often kind of don't give as much importance to. And I think the Langar, by allowing us to um, share our wealth, to serve others, and to show how equal we are um, is really important. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I love langa. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, cooking, I love feeding people, I love serving, and I love bringing everyone together to say, okay, let's serve. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's what I do.
And just going off of that, you were talking about community and our Punjabi community, I feel like one of the strengths of our community is, from my experience at least, is that they are very giving, especially financially around Vasaki time, Gurpurb, so people like giving to the Gurdwara. Uh, sometimes like the Gurdwara has to make announcements like we have too much milk, like stop bringing milk, right? <laughs> so our Punjabi community is very giving and ready to give. Um, and our, uh, we want like this question is going towards the positives and the negatives of what our community does. Another thing is education. A lot of us growing up, like the main thing was get educated, get educated. And mostly because a lot of our parents didn't have that privilege of being educated, which is why they they believe that education is the highest thing that you can have. It's the mm-hmm. answer to everything. Yes. <laughs> and your father used to say that to you is, mm-hmm. which means yes. that your education is your jewelry. Yes. Um, can you talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses that our community has and why we need to be aware of them? Um, strengths and weaknesses. I think that one of our strengths is definitely the importance we place on education. Mm-hmm. Um, education is the big equalizer. Um, you know, you can uh, you can rise to the top if you have an education, which is going to make you you know, on par with everyone else. So yeah, that's one of our our, our biggest uh, strengths is that um, uh, Punjabi parents will do whatever it takes. But they'll put the kids through you know whatever schooling mm-hmm. the kids want. So that's that's uh, very very important. Um, and th- and that has allowed us, you know, in the in the last I think seven or eight years, the um, the, the presence of the six at the highest levels in. Um, uh, the whole, um, what's the right word? Uh, they're so interested in politics and their ability to affect change simply because of their numbers and because of their interest in that whole process has been huge. Mm-hmm. Um, no other community has been able to do that, and that's yeah. because we, we, we all believe that we're powerful. And once we set our minds to something, we do it. So, um, which is all great. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, the some of the traditional ways of thinking, traditional roles, and traditional places have uh, had a negative impact on um, the way that we often raise our children. And so then that creates a lot of trouble. And uh, we have, uh, you know, a certain segment of society which doesn't believe in in all of the traditional strengths, um, the need to get a good education, the need to to understand that we are all equal, the need to treat everyone as equals, and so that's causing a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, there's then there's also the the um, the weight that society plays on, uh, places on us by forcing us or limiting us to certain roles. And we need to fight back against all of those. So those are things that I think we need um, to work at and clear out. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain groups that are doing, that are leading, um, you know, the path in that. And I think that um, we need to pay more attention and uh, help follow that. I'm speaking about the uh, Sikh 
youth leadership initiative that the mm-hmm. WSO has started. Yep. Um, they started, I think, five or six years ago where they take a bunch of uh, students um, from all across Canada, which is the other thing they, they, they don't take from Ottawa or from where the larger communities are. So through that whole process, they have set up uh, their little voices all across Canada, and they're all very young and all, uh, you know, still making their way in, in life, but they are young, they are vocal, they are um, strong, they are committed, they are disciplined, and it's it's those sorts of initiatives that uh, are having a great impact mm-hmm. one year at a time. Yeah. And just to add to that, another uh, WSO, they do amazing work, and another organization doing amazing work is Soch Mental Health, and yes, that's yes. a big one for mm-hmm. our community as well, is the stigma that we still are placing on mental health, alcoholism, drug mm-hmm. addictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our, our community is heavily affected by these yes, things. So yes, it's a lot of good work sure. mm-hmm. that's being done, yeah. Yeah, so I think your question was about, uh, you know, no, don't don't take more milk to the good brother. Right. <laughs> Take the milk or, or whatever is required yeah. to these sorts of initiatives. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we are uh, approaching the end of this podcast. Um, so just to wrap up a bit, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So Ishnan Gar is? Oh, my. <laughs> um, uh, that's a tough one. It is. I, I mean... So having worked all this time, having brought my children up, having put them through school and seen them come out the other end, um, uh, being healthy and happy and children all being healthy and uh, fabulous um, partnership with with Mahesh and um, uh, Shnankar is exactly where she um, would have wanted to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just nothing else out there that I strive for. Mm-hmm. So I'm very content. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, so we like to end every podcast with the random five, and these are just five totally random questions for the listeners to just get to know you better. Um, <laughs> so we'll just go turn by turn asking questions. Um, what is your favorite book? Um, so I don't think I have a favorite book. I, um, have been a voracious reader, um, all my life. Um, so when I was growing up in Sudbury, just a quick story, uh, my bedroom was on the lower level and, uh, my parents was on top. And, um, when they opened their curtains, uh, my window was right under theirs, and they could see whether the light was on in my room or not. Mm-hmm. And they would open it, they would say, so down. <laughs> <laughs> because all I did was read. And so then to get around that, I had a light in my closet. And so I turn all the lights off, push the clothes aside, turn the light on, sit in my closet, and read. <laughs> <laughs> and when I took my children to Sudbury, uh, Many, many years later, I took them to, to our old house and I asked the, um, the the current the owners at that time if I could show them my closet because I'd always spoken to them about how I used to get around my father's <laughs> by hiding in my closet. So 
always been a voracious reader. I don't know if I have a favorite book. I have a lot of favorite authors. Um, one of the books that I loved as a child, which I read many times, was, um, see if any of these are familiar to you, Thornbirds by Colleen McCullough. No, nobody probably has heard of it, but wow, I love that book. Um, the Way the Crow Flies, Anne-Marie MacDonald. Very dark book, but... I'm so embarrassed. I'm not no, much of a reader. No, no. Fabulous, fabulous. Okay. The Polished Toe, Austin Clark. He's, uh, yeah, just the writing is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, then anything by, um, what is her name? The one who just won the Nobel Prize, Alice Munro. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is so folksy, so calm, so peaceful. The writing is amazing. Um, the Assassin's Son, anything by Vasanji is great. And, of course, Joseph Boyden. Who could forget him? Three Day Road, Through, Blue, uh, Through Black Spruce, Villa uh, Renda. Amazing books. So on my night table right now, I have uh, Dear Life by Alice Munro. Mm -hmm. I have The Clueless Vegetarian, which is a cook cookbook. <laughs> Uh, the Education of an Idealist by Samantha Power. She was uh, Obama's human rights um, advisor, mm -hmm. and later he appointed her ambassador to the UN. And The Orenda by Joseph Boyd. So that's my um, night table right now. I've started moving away from paper books to online, and I have three on my phone, but <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I need wow. to go on a long trip to get those three read. Right. So those are my favorite books. So it's Book all kinds of genres that you have in there. Everything. Yeah. Yes. Books are fabulous. Wow. Books, books are, they just take you to a different world, which mm -hmm. is a great place to be. Yeah. <laughs> and our generation doesn't read enough. You should be reading more. Um, well, when I say that to my kids, they say, Mom, it's because we're on our phone. We read on our phone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good cop-out, I think. <laughs> Uh, next question. Uh, what is your favorite quote and or Bonnie Bunkley? Um, you know, I, I saw the question, so I had a chance to think about it. And when I grew up, there was a shabd that we uh, recited. And um, it's, okay, I'm going to see if any of you are familiar with it. Jotum girvur toham mora, jotum chand toham perihachapura. So if you translated that, Jotam Girvar Toha Mora, Girvar is a mountain and Mora is an animal who aspires to get to the top. Jotam Chanda Tohum Hachakura, again, the moon and this bird, this animal, which comes out only when the moon comes out. Madhve Tumna Toro Tohamni Ture, Tumsyotor Kavan Sangjure. So basically, you know, literally that means... Um, Unless you break up with me, I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be here forever. And that's because there just ain't anyone like you. Mm -hmm. Like if I break up with you, where am I going to go? There's no one else like you anywhere. If you're a lamp, I am the, the wick. If you're a holy place, then I'm the, the um, uh, pilgrim. Sachi pritam tum True love is what, what binds us. Tum avar If I'm with you, I, I just don't need anyone else. Everything is right there in you. Sorry, Jaja, Jao, Taha, Teri Seva, Tum Sothakar, Aur Na Deva. 
wherever I go, I'm just going to be, you know, thinking of you. Tum so thakur or na deva. If I have you, uh, there's just, I don't need to worry about anyone else. Tere varga hor koi ni hai. Tumari pajan kate jam fasa pal pehit gawe rabdasa. So, to me, this, this Shabd, even as a child, it spoke to me about, um, about, you know, Sachi Preet, true, true love. Mm-hmm. And that can come from so many places. And this Shabd to me always spoke about um, what love, what we can aspire to in love, what we can uh, give, and what we have uh, the hope of receiving mm-hmm. when it comes to love. And mm-hmm. to me, that was always really powerful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And so maybe I'm, I'm not interpreting it the, you know, the, the kosher way, but that's, that's what it speaks to me, mm-hmm. that, there, that there is this really powerful form of sachi preet that uh, if you find it, you don't need it. You can stop looking, and that becomes your beacon, and life is perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what else do you need? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So th- that's, it's always uh, spoken to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what is one of your weird quirks? I mentioned that already. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. I remember you saying it. What was it again? Yeah, about. the... the um, grammar. grammar. Yeah, grammar. Being, yeah, being picky about spelling and grammar and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, one of my pet peeves is when people mess up Y O U apostrophe R E versus Y O U R, and then there, 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 yes. three versions. Um, if you could meet anyone in history, who would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, um, honestly, you might find this odd. Um, I lost my oldest brother when I was. Uh, Let's see. I was 18, I think. But he had left home many years prior to that. And I never really got to know him as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the oldest, and I was you know, the third. And because he was a boy and the oldest, and I was years younger, like it was that typical rivalry, we never really got along. And so he died in 1974, and um, in 1983, he had uh, gone to school at Calgary, married there, and lived uh, his entire life there afterwards. In 83, I was in Calgary, and I knew only two things about his wife. I knew her last name. And I knew that uh, her parents had a um, Datsun, um, what are those called, a, a car dealership, a Datsun dealership in Medicine Hat. I had never spoken to my sister-in-law and had never met her. And um, long story short, we were in Medicine Hat. I had gone to, I knew, um, I had seen the... Um, notice about his burial and I went to that cemetery in the end though he was not buried my father was able to get his body he was estranged from my father my father was able to get his body and he uh, had him 
he did all of the sick, performed all the sick rites and had him created in, in, cremated, sorry, in suffering. But I was looking for information about my brother and I went to that cemetery hoping that there was something. There was nothing, of course. Um, I went to this uh, visitor center and I picked up the phone call and I called the Datsun dealership. And Mahesh, who knows everything about every car that's ever existed, said, Datsun doesn't exist, it's now a Nissan. So we called the Nissan dealership. I asked for um, my sister-in-law. And they said, oh, they sold the um, this dealership, and, but they now have an RV dealership instead. Two phone calls later, I was speaking to her brother, who gave me her phone call, her phone number. Third phone call was to her. So my brother's wife, she had never met me. I had never met her. I don't think I had ever spoken to her because I was in India. When I told her who I was, dead silence. And she spoke to me, and she spoke to me with, uh, like, like we'd known each other forever. She told me so much about my brother. Um, she eventually sent me some of, she sent me a t-shirt of his, which I wore for the longest time. She sent me letters that I had written to him. It was a really nice meeting, a really nice chat. I asked to meet her, and she said to me, she said, I, I loved him so much, that I wanted to die with him. He died in a car accident. And she said, for the longest time, I felt he was saying, come, come. And she said, if I meet you, it's going to bring all of that back. So we didn't meet, but she did, you know, send me a large part, part of his life, which I, I had not been a part of. And so when you ask if there's anything, I would, anyone I would like to meet, I'd like to meet him. Mm -hmm. beautiful. I'd love to, um, I'd love to see him as an, as an adult. And I would love my children to meet him. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Long story. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. He died in 1974. That's how many years ago? Mm -hmm. But it's that, that true love. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's not something that um, has a due date on it. It just it's there forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> and before we end today's podcast, is there anything else that you wanted to leave our listeners with? Um, all I would say is that we have the world at our fingertips we have unlimited opportunity and unlimited potential and we should just use it for all the right places because we can mm -hmm. <laughs> we can we can make a huge difference every individual can make a huge difference they may not see it like my mother she she would never have thought she would make the difference that she had but it's seminal mm -hmm. for generations people will remember um the, um, what she did through her simple methods and teaching someone Punjabi is something is a skill they're going to have forever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's to remember the power of the individual and the potential, and uh, everybody's 
obligation really to be the best that they can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we end off today, just a quick message for our listeners. If you have any questions, comments um, for either our guests or us, you can always email them at podcast at experienceikki.com. Once again, that's podcast at experienceikki.com. And as we end off today, thank you so much for being here, sharing your story, your experiences, and being as open as you were. I'm sure that we definitely learned a lot, appreciated this conversation a lot. And I really do hope that our listeners do as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast. 